0: Hello, hello. It's Brooke DeVard, and you're listening to the Naked Beauty Podcast. Welcome back to a brand new episode. I just got my Spotify wrapped, and I have been blown away with how many new listeners have discovered the show in the past year. Shout out to everyone who's new to the Naked Beauty community, but also shout out to everyone who's been listening from the beginning. I love and appreciate you all so much. And the stat that like truly just blew me away as I was going through my Spotify wrapped... Is that naked beauty was in the top 1% most shared globally for podcasts. That is incredible. And then there's this little breakdown of how you guys share the episodes direct links, sending via text, sending on Instagram, sending on WhatsApp. So thank you all for listening to the show and sharing it with your friends. That's how we spread the word. And today's topic is incredibly important. I am speaking to my friend and author, Danielle Prescott. She has worked in the beauty industry, in the fashion industry, and she's actually been on the podcast before, but she wrote this memoir. I had got an early copy. I was able to read it this summer and I was just blown away by her story. And I certainly know what it's like to be one of few Black women. I think about the school that I went to. I think I was one of the first Black girls to join my class. I went to an all-girls private school on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, not a very diverse school environment. College, I made a lot more Black friends, and I actually went out of my way to make sure that I had more Black friends, more diverse friends than I was able to find in kind of my little bubble and enclave in high school. But I think my parents, I really want to commend them because they did an amazing job of keeping me involved in all of these Black organizations. My brother and I were members of Jack and Jill. We were always going to Black museums, Black art shows. We were very much entrenched in our Black identity Race was something that was discussed often. So I don't think I struggled as much as I would have. But I also just think even if your parents do all of that and go above and beyond, it's very hard sometimes to be the only one, especially when you're in that phase of like wanting to fit in in your early teen years, your very formative years. But then we also talk about in this interview how that changes once you get into a working environment. What is it like to be the only Black woman at work? And what is it like to be tokenized? And Danielle just writes about it so beautifully and through her own lens. And I really wanted to, in this interview, get to the core of how the experience of being a token Black girl also shapes and impacts your perception of beauty and your own perception of yourself. I do want to read from her book how she characterizes the token black girl. So this is from Danielle's book. I'm just going to read a brief description. The token black girl is characterized mostly by her proximity to her white peers and her non-threatening and friendly nature. She is non-threatening because she is almost never the romantic interest. And her primary function is to provide attitude and sass, either as humor or as an attempt to elevate the sex appeal of the otherwise all white entity. She is a good student because she has to be. She actually feels like she has to be good at everything. She almost always is a good dancer. And even if she's not, it doesn't matter because everyone will think she's a good dancer. She either has or can get the requisite social signifiers of acceptance. Everything except white skin, of course. She will be well-spoken, well-dressed, and well-groomed. She likes all the things her friends like, including boys, but they will not like her. She almost never acknowledges her position as the sole Black member of a group because talking about race makes white people uncomfortable. She can never make white people uncomfortable. Her most critical responsibility is providing protection against the, quote, racist label that might otherwise be hurled at a gaggle of white women devoid of ethnic variety. So Danielle continues examining beauty standards as a system, one that has adverse effects on all women is worthwhile. In recent years, the dialogue about fighting these standards has become more empathetic. But like racism, it is a harmful culture that evolves just as quickly as counterculture. Social media apps have joined magazines in upholding a completely unattainable aesthetic as the singular criteria for beauty. And still imagery of black women and subjects pertaining to them are siphoned out of mainstream publications to ethnic magazines such as Ebony, Jet or Essence. She then goes into talking about growing up, reading Seventeen magazine and YM and all of these kind of mainstream publications where black beauty wasn't upheld. I think about now how young people have YouTube and you're able to find someone that looks like you and has your body type, your skin tone as an example of a beauty standard. I don't think it's even been discussed at length how much that is going to change this new generation's perception of beauty and what's considered beautiful. The fact that they're able to seek out and find representations of themselves in a way that millennials, frankly, were not able to. It's a really great discussion. I think you all are going to enjoy it immensely. Thank you again for all of the support. We're going to do a quick holiday segment and then get into the episode. Before we get into this week's episode, I really want to tell you about all of the home shopping I've been doing recently. So I always ask people, when do you feel most beautiful? And I've realized that for me, being in a setting and a surrounding that feels good and looks good, and also just that has design elements that reflect my taste, it's really important to me in my own sense of beauty. You sort of feel beautiful in beautiful spaces. This special holiday segment is presented by Macy's and ACAS creative. And I'm so excited to tell you about the investments I have made into making my space feel beautiful. I'm in a big life transition. As you all know, I've moved to LA and I'm celebrating the holidays here for the first time. And I have this amazing kitchen, which was a renovation project. It was originally all mahogany wood cabinets, but we had the cabinets painted. And we went through like, do we do a gray? Do we do a white color? And then we decided, no, let's do a really nice, rich, vibrant green. So we have this green kitchen. We updated all of the hardware to like a brushed brass. And then we found this gorgeous slab for the countertop and backsplash. It's truly my dream kitchen. So the kitchen looks amazing, but I need to fill it with beautiful items. And I could not be more excited about the things that I found from Macy's. These two items are truly special. I will link them in the show notes. But the first set of things that I got from Macy's, the Hotel Collection Fluted Glassware, it is just perfect. I got a large carafe. I got the highball glasses. I got the old-fashioned glasses. I got the champagne coupes. And they're just this beautiful fluted glass. It's so chic for a holiday gathering. Serving cocktails at home is great, but it's really key to have good glassware to set the cocktail off. Now, the second thing I invested in, I wanted to give my fruit more of a moment, more of a moment than your average bowl. So I got the Hotel Collection Pedestal Bowl, which is a marble and gold motif that just looks so good on my kitchen countertop but it would also look gorgeous in a holiday tablescape. So those are some of the investments I made for my kitchen. I hope you're inspired to maybe invest in a few things for your dream kitchen setting this holiday over at Macy's. And now let's get into the episode. All right, everyone. I am so excited for this interview. I am joined by the one and only Danielle Prescott. This is your third time on Naked Beauty and I'm here to talk about Token Black Girl with you, a memoir that I've read now three times. I've read and reread it and recommended it to so many people I know. And more recently, I've been recommending it to a lot of the white women that I went to school with because I really want them to understand a bit more and have more empathy for what it's like being the only and the other in school. But everyone who reads this book loves it so much. And I'm just excited to like get into the beauty conversation with you.
1: Wow, thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be back for time number three. We've gone on quite a journey.
0: We've gone on a journey. We've gone on a journey. And, and listening back to our conversation in 2017, it's also interesting to see where you were at that point in your life when you were doing the detoxes and the cleanses. So we're going to get into all of that. And you've been on like kind of like a bit of a whirlwind press tour with this book. You've I saw you in LA. I saw you do a talk in New York. How has it been just having this book out in the open?
1: It feels great. The thing about publishing is it's a very, very slow industry. You know, I came from the digital space where we're Publishing things as fast as possible. So it's a memoir. So it's taken me a lifetime to write, but then the whole editing process, the printing process, the marketing process, all of those things. I mean, it's been like two years since I signed a book deal over two years. So the whole thing has taken a long long time. So I'm really happy it's out there.
0: Oh, wow. So you've had this amazing whirlwind press tour promoting Token Black Girl. Are you still promoting the book? Like, do you still have readings and events? I'm absolutely still promoting the book. I
1: have an event in New Orleans on the 13th of December, and that will be my last one for the year, I'm sure, but I'm looking to do more next year. I love doing in-person events.
0: Yeah, it's so great to be able to meet your like readers and your audience in person. Well, Token Black Girl, I want to start from the very, very beginning. I have so many things underlined and highlighted in this book, and this is my second copy. The introduction, the very beginning, you have a quote from Malcolm X, 1962. Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? You should ask yourself, who taught you to hate being what God made you? That's the very first thing you see in the book. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I wanna know why you started with that quote for the start of the book.
1: I started with that quote because I think growing up in the kind of educational environment I did, we never learned anything about Malcolm X. I went to predominantly white private schools for high school, middle school, elementary school. And then I went to NYU. And when I got to NYU is when I started kind of exploring quote unquote radical thought, just things that were decentering whiteness and decolonizing the kind of like education I had received up to that point. That Malcolm X quote is from a speech that he gave at a funeral, a young person who was killed by police brutality in May of 1962. And I wasn't even able to use the full quote for legal reasons. That's just like the condensed kind of part. But I think it highlights one of the issues of tokenism that is not really talked about, that it breeds this kind of scarcity mindset, that it separates you. If you accept a position of tokenization, it separates you from the people, your community that you belong to. And it makes you kind of hate that. It makes you hate yourself. It makes you hate being around them this is so problematic. And it's something that I think is not really addressed in the tokenism conversation because we kind of lean more into, we need representation. And of course, representation is so important, but it's also that community building that's lost when you are made a token.
0: And we're going to get into why you wanted to distance yourself from the Black community or images of Black people because of what you were seeing in the media. But the thing that strikes me so much about this book and where I want to center our conversation is how the experience of being a token Black girl impacts your perception of beauty and self-worth. Obviously, this is a beauty podcast, and we're going to talk about beauty, but there's a thread throughout this book around your own self-acceptance and what you perceived as beautiful and how you chose to express yourself with fashion or clothing or your weight that I think is a really strong undercurrent throughout the book. Being a token Black girl, how do you define it?
1: I mean, I define it very formally in the book, but the loose definition is one of one or one of very few that exists in an all-white space. And the intention of this person's existence, it strips you of your ability to access humanity because now you become a symbol greater than yourself. You become a symbol for signaling that an institution is not racist or a community is not racist. a town, a hobby, whatever. And that is useful to white people. As long as you play that role, you are useful to them. But if you exhibit behaviors that demonstrate that your allegiance isn't to whiteness, you become threatening and dangerous. It's almost like being treated like a pet in some cases. And it happens in so many different instances from school places to workplaces. And usually someone is profiting off the image of the quote unquote token black girl. And it's not the token
0: Black girl. <laughs> and it's not the token Black girl, exactly. Which is why I love that this is what you named your book. I was just talking to a Black woman who's a creator. She, you know, She, She's had this huge success on Instagram. And she talked about going on these press trips as the only Black woman. And she basically said, all of the other white girls on this trip were relaxing and enjoying themselves. They were drinking rosé by the pool. And she's like, but I was there working. I was filming videos with the founder. The photographer was grabbing me for every single group shot. And it became very clear to me, that I was being tokenized in this way, it's uncomfortable, right? Because you want to accept opportunities. You know, as I was interviewing to join a tech company, if I was the only Black person on the team, I wanted to get that position so I could get other Black people into the company. But then you accept a position where you are the only one, which is oftentimes uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, and it's a lot of pressure. And I think that compounded over many years, it just isn't sustainable. I think that the book kind of details how it kind of broke me down. But I thought for sure that for most of my life, like I would be the only or one of very few black women in any room because that's what I had been shown. Like I never thought that I would work in an all black company. I never thought that I would found a black company. So that ended up being surprising. I had just accepted that that's what my life would look like.
0: Well, one of the things that I think really helps to anchor the book is that it's chronological. So I'm going to ask you questions chronologically, starting with your childhood. You grew up in, it's not Westchester, right? Yeah, Westchester. Westchester, Mm okay. Westchester, predominantly white. You already talked about you went to a predominantly white school. One of the things that you say is that after careful observation of the world's distaste for anybody of substantial size, But particularly women, I knew I had to remain as small as possible. My black body need to be slimmed down dramatically. Later you say, my makeup would need to complement my features, but not be loud or flamboyant. One of the things that is painful for me to read, especially as a parent now, is how you felt that you needed to make yourself smaller to blend in and to fit in. What was it like for you at that age? Were you conscious that you were doing this or was it just a survival response to the environment you were in?
1: I don't think it was conscious, but I also think that the way that diet culture was so integrated with how we thought about everything, it didn't even seem like weird. It was like one of those things where it was in every sitcom, someone was on a diet or slimming down. It was on the tabloid, they would print people's weight if they lost weight if they gained weight so you'd see it in the supermarket like you'd see it on slim fast ads on television like it was just like in the ether it wasn't like i intentionally set it out but it was like everyone was screaming like you must be skinny you must be skinny and like there was all kinds of horrible fat jokes that would be made all the time you know it was like being fat was so overwhelmingly negative And so it was just something that by osmosis affected me.
0: But also this desire, in addition to staying at a very small size, to not stand out, right? To not do too much with your hair or wear bright makeup. Was this just a way of kind of fitting in?
1: I think fitting in, but I also think for me, it helps me to gain more privilege. So in some ways, I comparatively had a lot of privilege. I think every individual comes with their own set of privileges. To me, it's not a bad word, but I had a lot of privileges, but I was in an environment where I felt like I didn't have any. And so I felt the way to access more would be to become better looking, become the kind of person who makes the decisions on what's cool and what's not cool, a tastemaker, so to speak. I wanted to power myself up somehow. And I felt that the way to do that was by having these kind of infallible opinions on how people should look and how I should look.
0: Yes. We're going to get into your mean girl era, but going back to like being under 14, there was so much that was brought up that I had kind of forgotten about. So things like you're with a group of friends and you're automatically Scary Spice. You talked about identifying more with Ginger or Baby, but like, because you were Black, okay, you're going to be Scary Spice in the group. There are all of these things that at a young age, we experience and they almost kind of get like tucked into the recesses of our mind. But you bring up the doll experiment. And I would love for you to talk a bit more about the doll experiment, because I do think it's a reminder how early we understand what quote unquote beauty is.
1: Sure. So the doll test happened in the 40s, and it was kind of an experiment by two married psychologists, Drs. Kenneth and Mamie Clark, to explore the effects of segregation on school-aged children and their self-esteem. They would ask different age groups of Black children You know, they would show them two identical dolls. One was a white doll and one was a black doll, but the dolls were identical except for the fact that like they had different skin color. So they would ask them about different attributes. Like they'd say, which doll is the nice doll? Which doll is the mean doll? Which doll is the bad doll? Which doll is the pretty doll? And in these series of questions, consistently what they found is that black children were associating positive attributes with whiteness and negative attributes with blackness. And white children were doing the same thing. It's like, how did these children learn this, right? Like, they are as young as three and four. And that's why it is so crucial that parents are starting to have race conversations and sensitivity conversations at early ages, because you think that kids don't know things or they don't notice things, but they absolutely do. Yes. They're making those assumptions too based on things that they're seeing and no one's either correcting them or addressing them even.
0: And I know I had a chance to meet your mom at the event, but one of the things that you talk about is that race was not necessarily a main central, always on discussion in your household. And that as your mom read the book, she said to you, I felt like maybe we could have done more at home or talked to you more about the black experience. At the time, who did you have to talk to about the Black experience, or did you have no one?
1: I didn't have anybody. You know, it wasn't like we were not getting that kind of education. You know, my grandfather and I write about this in the book too. He would basically give us history lessons, and we'd have to sit there in his house and listen to family history lessons, general Black history lessons. He was really kind of amazed at the way that our lives were so different from his life and it would just happen in one generation. So it was pretty fast, but he would always remind us that his kids were only the fourth generation out of slavery. Like my family's been in America for a long time. So that is kind of remarkable.
0: It is remarkable. I think the history lessons are great the thing that I'm reminded of is how desperately kids want to fit in. And you explain it really well. You talk about, so I'm reading from your book, the fusion of blackness with ugliness, poverty, and general negativity was pervasive in all media forms. And I continued to absorb it over and over again, further driving my desire to put distance between myself and being black. It meant everything to me that I was accepted among my white classmates, that I was seen as one of them, which is sad and heartbreaking to read. But I also just understand at a young age, there's a very real desire to fit in. And I think all young people feel that regardless of how they're raised at home, this desire to just like want to be part of the group. For sure.
1: And a lot of people are like, how can you write these things? You know, how can you admit these things? I'm like, I don't think it serves anyone to pretend like I didn't feel like that. And I also think that If you're on a true journey of self-love, you have to accept all parts of yourself, even ugly ones, even ones that you would want to hide and just be like, I'm giving this girl love. Yes. I recognize like how lost she was. She did the best she could and she grew and that's okay.
0: Yes. But back to the doll experiment or the doll test, it's again, it's like that continual reinforcement of blackness with things that are considered undesirable, not beautiful of course, it's going to seep into your brain and impact the way that you think about things. You've also talked about doing ballet. How did dance in the ballet environment impact your perception of your own beauty?
1: It's so interesting because ballet is one of those things where you have to fit in. Actually, like there is no room for dissent. It is old and very serious. I was very concerned with my hair, like how that looked in class. There was not really such thing as a nude tight. So I was always in pink tights, pink shoes, and it definitely stood out. Come time for recitals and all the girls would be getting their hair and makeup done. I would have to make sure that I could do my own. And I definitely looked awful. Like we didn't have YouTube. So it was a lot of really sad trial and error, you know? So I never really felt beautiful either, like performing or because I was like, I don't look right. None of this looks right. But I didn't have the language or the tools To communicate that and I didn't know what to do about it. So it definitely affected the way I thought about myself.
0: Yes. And the hair salon experience is another thing that you write about really beautifully, but the addiction cycle it creates, like that message you got the first time you got your relaxer leaving the hairdresser, like, okay, I'm getting, I'm inching closer and closer and closer to this idea of beauty. And now these are necessities in my life. My hair always has to be done. I have to wear makeup. I have to like look a certain way. I would love to hear you just talk a little bit more about your relationship with your hair and what messages you received early on about beauty and beauty being something that you have to participate in.
1: It's so funny because when we were editing this book, I had two editors and one of my editors was like, okay, we have too many hair chapters. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Was this a white person? (laughs) No, it was my black editor. Oh, really? And she
1: was just like, it's important, but like, it's just, we, we talk about it too much. We really had to condense it. And I think that there was like this image I have, and I I think that a lot of people have this of like how easy it would be for white people with straight hair to like play with it, to like put it up, to like take it down. I always thought that was the most glamorous thing ever. You know, my parents would always be like, stop touching your hair because once it was done, that's how it should stay. They'd be like, don't play in it. That's what they would always say. And I'm like, I just want to do the thing. I just want it to be glam. And so I had like a frustration, like there were things I wanted my hair to do. There was a way I wanted my hair to look that I could not achieve. And again, like when did I get my first perm in 1998? Very primitive methods, guys. Like we were not working with quality things. You know, I got my hair done like at someone's house and when all my friends went to like salons, I also thought that was very glamorous and grown up. And we just didn't have that. It was a very word of mouth thing. And we had to drive several towns over to like go there. And it kind of disappointed me because I wanted to participate in the beauty ritual as this beacon of reaching some sort of consumer status, right? Like I thought it was, I had to get my hair done. Like felt very grown up and cool and going somewhere to get your hair done and then asking for what you wanted. Oh, I want highlights. Oh, I want layers. I felt robbed, you know, of that experience. (laughs) And then I would go to these people and they would give me hair like that. I didn't want. They would always like slick my edges down, which I really hated the look of.
0: Always bump the ends.
1: Yes, bump the ends. Like give me an curl.
0: You wanted bone straight. You never got it. Never. Why? They always bumped the ends.
1: And I would cry. And I never said anything to these hairdressers, but I would cry all the time because I was like, "Why can't I just get what I want my hair to look like?"
0: Yes. You know, I do think it is interesting as a young black girl, you do learn a very early lesson. I think earlier than other women learn this idea that beauty is pain. Like, yes, your scalp is going to be burning from relaxer or you're going to have to hold your ear down for an hour while your hair is being hot combed or detangling. It's not like, oh, it hurts. I'm not going to do it. It's just like, yeah, it's going to hurt, but you're going to do it.
1: Exactly. Because even like detangling your hair was so painful. Like I'm like, Oh my gosh. There are so many methods and like brushes and combs.
0: I know we didn't have any of that. No, you just have to cry. You just have to sit there and cry. <laughs> right. And then you would be called tender headed and it's like, no, I'm not tender headed. Like I just have pain receptors on my scalp. <laughs> I'm a child. <laughs> yeah. Nothing out of the ordinary here. I just am capable of feeling and getting into college, post-college, you decided you wanted to enter the world of fashion magazines, which is probably one of the most toxic industries there is. I've talked about it a lot on my podcast with several editors and people that still work in the space. But what do you think it was that drew you to that industry? By the way, I love the industry. I'm saying this like I'm so removed and like on this perch. Like I love the fashion industry. I've worked in the fashion industry. I used to intern for Balenciaga, speaking of uh, problematic fashion brands. But... I understand the pull of the industry, but I want to hear for you, what drew you to it? And, you know, you went to a great college, very smart. What made you think, I want to make my mark and build my career in this space?
1: I really just think that clothes made me feel so powerful. It was like, you know, the thing that I couldn't do with my hair, which is like, I wanted to make myself this person I could do with clothing. And it made me feel like I could do anything. I really loved the rush it gave me. I just sought it out over and over and over again.
0: Do you think there is a correlation between all girls, mostly white, private school and working in the fashion industry in New York? Yes, for sure. They're very similar, right? In terms of just understanding subtext and tone and knowing when to speak and not to speak and knowing what to wear and when. I feel like there are several like unwritten codes in a lot of these settings that you kind of learn as a survival mechanism going to an all girls school.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. That was like my best preparation for working in fashion. Nothing surprised me. By the time I was an adult, I was like, Oh, I'll never get played. Whereas like, I think that, I think that's like also another privilege, right? Of having been socialized amongst mean white girls or like rich white girls, because like when by the time it was like time for me to go into a professional setting, like I'm already practiced in that and the stakes are like much higher than if you're a kid you could lose your job. And like, how many times did like things go wrong? Like, I'm glad that like stuff was going wrong for me in high school so that nothing went wrong for me in my professional career. Although there is a story that I did, um, something did hit.
0: (laughs) Do you want to share that story that happened with the media company?
1: Sure. So I worked with Click Media for one month, well, maybe a little longer than a month in 2016. And they had recruited me and hired me. And then as soon as I started working there, it was nothing but problem after problem after problem. It was very funny because it always seemed like the problem originated with a person of color being prominently displayed. It was a social media first media endeavor. So like all the content only lived on social platforms. There was no CMS to speak of. And whenever I would feature Black people, I would get in trouble. And then they were like monitoring my own social media and they didn't like the things that I was saying, which was very bizarre. And then they had asked me to fly to LA to like do this launch brunch. And I already have a trip booked to Thailand. I don't know if I can like do less than 48 hour trip to LA and then like go to Thailand. Like I'm like, can I fly business? And they had never responded back to me. So I just upgraded myself and I asked to be reimbursed. And then like when they were letting me go, they told me that that changed people's opinions of me and the company. Like I shouldn't have asked for that. And I'm like, I'm a director and you hired me like flying business is is the least of it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know people put on their expenses? I'm like, not even kidding, like $30,000 worth of like travel and expenses a month. Like that's what editors are doing or directors are doing.
0: They're going to dinner and ordering the most expensive thing and inviting their friends and expensing it all. But when you do it, it's a problem. Now, we talked a little bit about the token Black girl being the pet. And there was an article, I think it was from Refinery29, about going from pet to threat, that a Black woman in the workplace can be appreciated as long as she's the fun, funny one that's entertaining. But the moment she becomes a threat or you know gets a position of power, that's no longer comfortable. Did you feel that there was some of that going on? Or did you feel like from the beginning, as a Black woman entering the space, you were just being rejected?
1: No, I definitely feel like it was pet to threat. You know, from afar, they were like, Oh, she's so cute. She's on brand. They were casting me, not really hiring me. So then when they saw that I actually wanted to like do things like feature black people,
0: they're like, Oh, we don't like that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sorry that that experience happened to you. It's just a reminder. It's one of those things that helped to push you to eventually taking on the amazing position you took at BET as you were the fashion and style director. Yeah. So actually before we get to BET. Being someone that is critical of others and being like a bit of like a mean girl or being someone that can tell you if what you're wearing is in or out. You talk about that becoming like a really big part of your personality. And I want to dive a little bit more into that. What do you think motivated that?
1: I think when people feel threatened, they default to weaponizing whatever like privileges they have. That's like why like when someone goes up to like a bouncer and then the bouncer's not laying in the they're like, do you know who I am? It's kind of like that on a different scale. Like I felt like, okay, like in these environments, like I don't have enough power as I would like to, like, how can I get more of it? And like, if I become this like authority that people trust and people are looking to, then that like reward center is like constantly going for me. Which can help me feel better about myself.
0: And you talk about the amount of time that you spent getting ready, figuring out the perfect outfit, cultivating your wardrobe, which is something that as an adult, as a 33 year old, I can relate to now. I think I spend a lot of time thinking about, I mean, when am I going to get my hair done? When am I going to get my nails done? What am I wearing for this dinner on Thursday? It takes up a lot of mental space. And the thing that I've been thinking about just consistently since reading your book, is how healthy is that? And how much of that is a response to the patriarchy, is a response to white supremacy? And is it healthy to have this amount of real estate put towards your appearance? I enjoy it, though. I love thinking about what my next hairstyle is, and I love going to get my nails done. But is it too much time? And how do you find that balance?
1: No, I don't think it's healthy, (laughs) but at the same time, like I'm a realistic person. Like I'm not going to romanticize this. Like I also know that there is a direct link to opportunities I get with how I look.
0: Right. Like you hosted a book launch with Revolve, for instance, because you look great in Revolve clothes or, you know, you hosted something with Reformation. If you weren't beautiful and if you didn't look great in the clothes, would they be as enthusiastic about helping and supporting the book?
1: Right. And at this point in my career, like, I don't know. I think like, yes, they would. But like getting into the industry, it was like very cutthroat. It was very much people were making decisions like based on what an intern wore to their interview outfit, if they would get in position or not. And I think that in the industry, getting that first opportunity helps you get the second opportunity. But if you never get in the door, and I guarantee you, because I saw it, there were people who never got in the door because they didn't look right. So I think it matters like a little bit less now. I think we've earned the right to be like, oh, our hair is messy. And like, you guys don't get to say anything, but when you're first (laughs) building it out, like, yeah, it would have been almost impossible, almost impossible. Yes. Not impossible, but almost impossible.
0: That's so true. So in terms of, I don't want to skip too far ahead into your relationship with beauty now, because I do want to stay on this working in the fashion industry. When did you realize the way that I'm working currently is not sustainable? You talk about not wanting to change your hair at work because you didn't want to deal with white coworkers commenting about your hair changes. When did you think, okay, I actually would love to work at a place like BET?
1: I didn't even know it was an option. It's so funny because like, if you really knew me, you knew I like always changed my hair when I changed my job. Like I would just keep my same hair. If I was going to keep the same coworkers. And then once I started a new job, I'm like, thank God I can do new hair. Now. I never thought that working at a place like BET would have been possible. It really like never crossed my mind that I knew I needed to do something different. And immediately it felt better, just like felt more bright. And so I was really relieved to have gotten that opportunity.
0: But it also wasn't without its challenges, right? Because you talk about one of the challenges of being a token Black girl is you don't fit in with the white kids at school, but oftentimes you feel alienated from the Black community because it's like, oh, you can't play spades. You can't double dutch. What was the movie that you hadn't seen? And everyone was shocked you hadn't seen it.
1: I mean, so many, like (laughs) I don't watch movies though. Like I literally don't like movies. So people would be like, oh, what was it? like? Players Club? They're like, oh, that's like always playing on BT." I never watched it.
0: So there are parts of the Black experience that you couldn't relate to. And that kind of became more clear for you once you started working at BET, right?
1: Well, I think that's residual kind of trauma I had from like being young, but actually for the most part, it was like very accepting. They thought I was like quirky and funny because we all bonded over like the same mission that we were like doing this for Black culture. And there's so many different facets of Black culture. So that felt really good to like have that acceptance. Of course, there were like awkward, like moments of like, yeah, like I have never seen this movie. So people would like make a a reference or I would make a reference. That would be more awkward. And people are like, what are you talking about? (laughs) That would be more weird.
0: (laughs) And you bring up W.E.B. Du Bois in the book, but this idea of double consciousness, right? Of you are aware of yourself living your life, but then you're also always aware of how you're being perceived in rooms with white people and rooms with black people. It's like this consistent state of seeing yourself outside of yourself that I think is unique to minorities in this country.
1: Yeah, I saw a tweet today from Trissy McMillan Cottom. She's just like, this academic and she lives in North Carolina. And she was like, I'm not sharing my Spotify rat because the black people are going to barbecue me or something like that. Cause she was... <laughs> she's she's like, going to be like Taylor Swift. <laughs> I think she like really loves Dolly Parton too. So I, I think it was going to be like a lot of that. But I'm like, if that's what you like, you should be able to like that. You know, it's so sad that that is something that all of us know. Like, I'm like, I feel like sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm having this like with dating now, you know, since the book came out, I used to make a lot of dating content on TikTok. And I'm like, I'm so nervous. Like people, if I'm like dating a white guy, someone's going to be like, see, I knew it. You hate yourself. And then i like, if I'm like dating a black man, like someone's going to like have something to say about that too. Like, you know, so I'm just like, I don't know what to
0: do. Like, I don't know what to share or what not to share. It's like maybe like really now, freaked out. When it comes to what you share online versus what you don't share online, I do think, I know you said, you know, there are people that don't like Beyonce, so you can't win. But I do think that If you feel it in your heart to share something, I think it is good to share it. I think what's unfortunate is that we live in this feedback culture where you get like people's immediate reaction and like comments that they probably should have kept to themselves, which makes you less incentivized to share things about your life.
1: Totally. Like I'm just like sick of being judged kind of. And I'm like, I'm a writer and I want to be a writer. So like I get to make content, pictures, videos and stuff on the side, but like, I'm like, I just want to write. (laughs)
0: Right. Read my book. You need to hear from me. Just read. You know? Yes. And that's totally understandable. Would you be open to sharing the experience on like a brand trip that you did with suit? Sure. So
1: I went on a trip to Nantucket.
0: And what were you doing at this point? You were an editor, correct?
1: I was an editor at InStyle. I was the accessories editor there. A brand trip is when like, people invite you for a weekend or a week somewhere to kind of like wine and dine you and introduce you to products. And so that's what this was. We were like at this Nantucket house and they had like a trainer to come show us workout gear. And then like we had like DiGiorno pizza. They wanted us to test it. It was like this whole fun thing. And we also had Cadillacs to drive. They were the car sponsor. And so I am. I don't drink. So I was not drinking at the time. So I was like kind of the DD, which is good because Nantucket doesn't have an Uber system. So we had driven to this restaurant. It's like a very casual restaurant. I was seated near this guy, Stuart. He's married to the CMO of the company. And he only dresses in sequin blazers that are custom. And he's also six five, So he's like big and he was wearing this like red sequin blazer, like full sequins. I can't emphasize this enough, like <laughs> full sequins.
0: I've got the visual. Yeah.
1: he is sitting at the head of the table and I'm sitting like to his left at the corner. And so we're just like casually talking and he's describing that he has two granddaughters that they're constantly fighting. And so I asked like what their age difference was. And he was like, oh, three and five. And I said, well, you know, that's like the same age difference between me and my sister. And we used to fight all the time as kids. But then when I got my driver's license and I was able to like drive us to school it really like improved our relationship because we had to be together. And he was like, well, what was it like to drive to school in the ghetto? And I didn't say where I had went to school. I didn't say anything about that. I just said that we had, I had driven us to school. And so I didn't really respond to that because I was like, I don't even know what to say. (laughs) I guess I was just kind of like, oh, I didn't go to school in the ghetto. And he was like, where did you go to school? And I was like in Connecticut. And then he was like, where in Connecticut. And I was like, Greenwich. <laughs> we're just like Very much not. Not the ghetto. The quote unquote ghetto. And so then he asked me what my parents did. He was like, do they work or are, they, are you guys on welfare? You know, he just was getting drunker and drunker. And so
0: can I pause there? So the people sitting around you at this dinner, what was their reaction at any point? Did they interject? Did they say something or were they just observing or not paying attention?
1: No, I think that they were conscious of it. I mean, like, he's a loud guy and it was, he was being loud and he was getting drunk. So I think like they were conscious of it, but they kept trying to like switch the subject, you know, and be like, oh, so you've been to the chicken box before instead of like letting him like continue on. But he was wasted. So he was like keeping going. And then it concluded with like everyone kind of getting into the cars at the end of the night and he gets in the front seat of the car I was driving. And he's like, oh, good. Chocolate Thunder is going to drive. And I was just like, this is so insane. And because, again, I'm sober, I got out of the car and I was like, I'm not driving there. Good luck getting there to everybody. Call a taxi.
0: Chocolate Thunder is my jaw was open as I was reading this because it just got worse and worse and worse. But it's also like to be the recipient of that sort of honestly like abuse on a work trip and then just like go about your day and hand in your assignments the next day. And and it's just like, that's just what you're expected to do. Yeah. And then the brand like
1: followed up when I got back to New York being like, oh, like, would you like to feature Miracle Suit? And I like wrote them back an email and I was like, I will absolutely never feature this brand if it is like in my power to feature them. They never responded. I also then emailed the people, I think I forwarded it to the people who organized the trip. And that's the thing about the way that like people see things shake out in social media. I think that Chrissy and I have both undergone this like kind of scrutiny in the last few years that like we quote unquote just decided to speak out about racism. Like it's,
0: you know, quote unquote trending. I'm going to pause you there. So you and Chrissy Rutherford started a consulting company to Black Girls Consulting. Is that what it's? Yeah. Yep. And you helped beauty brands and fashion brands basically be more inclusive, understand a little bit more about how to approach and work with the Black community with intention. So, okay, that's the background. So you started that company in 2020 and people have been critical of you for doing that?
1: Yeah. And I think just in general of the timing of my book coming out and the timing of the climate of the industry, basically, that like this is trendy and people are like capitalizing on this. And I'm like, Yeah, but what you didn't see is these emails and incidents and stuff that happened in 2014 where like I was not able to share that with anyone. Like there was no appropriate platform for that. And no one was listening. Like, right, I'm telling you, I sent these emails and no one responded. And there are countless incidents that like nobody knows about that so many editors went through. Like this is just one of them. Like this is countless. And it was like sometimes not worth it for you to even be the person who's bringing it up because you're giving yourself another job. Like it's on top of the jobs that you're already doing and you're probably already exhausted. It was just a really awful situation to be in. Now that we can talk about these things, it feels really liberating. And hopefully it helps improve that situation so that other people are not experiencing this going forward.
0: Yes. The other thing I want to really make super clear here is for anyone who considers himself an ally, when you see something like this going on to someone around you, changing the subject, that's like light ally work. That's like a, a diversion, but it's really like on you if you really consider yourself to be an ally to Black people and really to anyone that is being made to feel marginalized by their identity to say something and to just outwardly say like this is not okay you should not be saying these things because had someone done that in that situation you probably would have felt so much better and less alone
1: i would have felt less alone and you know it was also a professional set like we were essentially at a work dinner it was paid for by the brand it was like so inappropriate this was not like someone's personal dinner party like went awry like this was a sponsored event they had a professional responsibility to make it right no one did
0: Now, has the brand reached out to you since this book has come out? No. No one from the brand... Is the CMO still the CMO?
1: I think so, from what I understand. Yeah. But yeah, no one from the brand... No one from any company I ever worked for or anything...
0: (laughs) Has reached out.
1: No. Institutions really don't like being criticized. So I'm not that surprised.
0: Well, people don't like being criticized. And that's one of the questions that I asked you for your LA book event. We were talking about White privilege. And my question to you was oftentimes when I bring up these issues to white friends of mine, I can feel them immediately becoming defensive. They are so quick to distance themselves from anything having to do with racism. Or, you know, it's always that thing. Like I have so many friends from all different places or I don't see color, which is not really the good thing that people think it is. But what you said was that privilege is neutral, which was such an eye opening moment for me because white privilege is not a bad thing. It is just a fact. And what did you say? You were like, I'm educated. My parents were married. You have all your able-bodied, right? Everyone has privilege, but it's not good or bad. It's just neutral. You just have to recognize it.
1: And you also have to make sure you don't abuse it. So like, if you're like an able-bodied person and you're out here trying to make sure that every building has only stairs, that's what's messed up. And that is like a manifestation of like how white supremacy functions. If you are a white person and trying to protect whiteness from other groups, being able to access the imagined power that comes with whiteness, then you're abusing your privilege. Like now it's no longer neutral.
0: That's a really, really helpful distinction. We did our first interview in 2017. I think you had just left like Moda Operandi, maybe, or maybe you were still with Moda Operandi. I
1: had to have been at BT. I oh, know you're at L. Cause you met me in the Viacom cafeteria.
0: Okay, you're right. You are right. You were right. You still had blonde hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm going by like hair eras. We did spend a lot of time talking about you were doing your bone broth and your green tea. And in the book, you talk about going to this doctor, Dr. Passler, who treated all these Victoria's Secret models, who basically like put you on a diet with diet pills. Well, no, you, you shopped around to get diet pills, but. You talk about this experience of getting smaller and smaller and smaller and essentially starving yourself. And I think those parts of the book were I really felt for you in those chapters because I would imagine this really hard to revisit these moments and it's like probably painful to reflect on. Even now I'm like, reflect on these painful things. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> were you ever diagnosed with like anorexia or would you say that you were anorexic? Yes. Okay.
1: I was diagnosed with both anorexia
0: and bulimia. Anorexia, bulimia. And then did you also have like body dysmorphia? I mean, I definitely have body dysmorphia. I would love to know what I really look like.
1: I don't think that that was like in my formal diagnosis though. Okay.
0: Okay. Would you be comfortable speaking a little bit more about what that time in your life was like and how it Impacted your relationships, your ability to function, your ability to enjoy yourself, your energy levels, your self worth, all of that.
1: I think what's also important to kind of contextualize for people is that like, I always had issues with food. I went into meeting this doctor already having serious eating disordered behaviors. I kind of was looking for a more official outlet to like give a stamp of approval to like these things that I was already like comfortable doing like fasting, AKA starving or like drinking a liquid diet or things like that. And I try not to like put too much detail like into things. Cause I'm like, when I was like really ill, I would like be reading books and the people would be talking about like things they would do. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Put grapes in the freezer. Got it. Like I'm not giving like tips, but I was fully ready To live the rest of my life that way forever. And it was because I felt that my level of professional success was so tied to how I looked. I'm not going to lie. Like I've gained 70 pounds in the last two years. I don't get booked for any modeling jobs anymore. Like I used to make a lot more money as a creator, but I no longer fit into clothes and I'm having like so many issues with that. And I'm not getting booked.
0: Because this is like an audio format. I mean, people know what you look like and can Google you or go to your Instagram, but you are also by no means now a large person. I mean, like you are still very small. Like I feel like that's very important to like express because you're still very small. And you're saying that you're being booked less, you're feeling this impact now at the size that you're at now, which is like shocking to me. Well, I'm very
1: small. Like regular world, but for fashion worlds, I'm extra extra large. Like that's what I want to like, kind of like give to people so they understand that. Because yes, if I shopped at Old Navy, I probably would have zero problems. But I'm trying to wear an Alia dress where like I got I got a 46 or I got a 44, but the arms are still a 38, and I can't get my arms through it. Like the realm that I was existing in, the places that I was, like yes, like thinness in the extreme is. Definitely prioritize. So, like, yes, while like I'm, I can find clothes at stores. I'm like extremely lucky. It's like high end designer clothes, not so much. That's what we're talking about, and that's the kind of opportunities we're
0: talking about. But you talk about how much your life was inconvenienced <laughs> to kind of keep up this starvation, right? Like you would go on dates and you wouldn't eat.
1: To say the least, food. it was really like all encompassing. But I also felt. And I think that you and I have talked about this too, like this like kind of like overachiever chip we have. Absolutely. I just don't know. Like I'm like, well, I need something to be striving for all the time. And I think I was at that point in my life very much running from myself. So if I always keep busy, if I always have something to focus on, if I always have something to do, I don't have to be alone with like how sad I actually am. So I was just like in hyperdrive all the time. I was exercising multiple times a day. I mean, it was just really nuts. When I think about the amount of events I would attend in a single day or evening, I'm like shocked because I'm like, the wind is knocked out of me for doing like something for three hours a day. I'm like, what was I thinking? But I wasn't. It was like this other kind of energy. It was really like frenetic, horrible energy.
0: Yeah. And running on literally fumes. Like when you're not eating, you don't even have the energy to do anything.
1: And it made me like so irritable. And like that, I think has been like a massive personality change too. Like when you're so hangry, like constantly, you're so short fused. I was like full of rage all the time. Like that was crazy. I'm like, I'm so chill now. I'm like, nothing affects me because I'm like whole, I guess. Like, you know, like I don't have like this like rabid hunger.
0: There's sustenance. Yeah. Okay. I remember early on in my like Vogue internship, when I realized that like a lot of the editors were like very unkind, I realized how many of them were like on juice detoxes or like not eating. And I was just like, oh, they're just like tired and cranky and hungry. Like, of course, that's why they're like on edge and like really like short- tempered because like they've only had an iced coffee today and I know this because I sit right next to them and like they asked me to bring them their iced coffee but they have not the entire internship we never once went to the cafeteria I'm like does we have a free cafeteria downstairs is anyone gonna like ever go down there or eat but it's just like you just you get your little Starbucks order or an intern gets it and then you just like work and you don't eat I I think it's very different now but yeah that's so interesting how like just eating changes your personality it does (laughs) I want to get to happier times And the book doesn't go into your move to New Orleans, but this is something that's like very near and dear to my heart because I have taken this very vast lifestyle change of like moving to California, which pacing wise couldn't be more different from New York City. And I want to hear from you. What has it been like to move to the South, to New Orleans of all places? And how has that changed the way that you feel about yourself?
1: Well, thank God that I did it kind of like naively. Because now I'm here. And I think that if I would have known some things, I would have probably thought more carefully about it.
0: Like what things?
1: Like how difficult it would be for me to work here as an entrepreneur. And I don't even like saying this because I don't even want to be like negative. Like I'm really like on this, like I only want positive things. So I'll say like something critical and then I'll be like, but I'm so lucky to do it. So, you know, I need support. In like the businesses that I like do, I have many jobs. I oversee copy for do. I run 2BG with Chrissy. I write for various publications. I have my book now. As of last year, I also had a podcast. Like I am constantly like working on projects and occasionally I'm hired as a content creator and I like need help doing that. It has been so hard to find help because this is not really a town that supports ambition and it doesn't prioritize like work. That was something I was seeking. Like I wanted to like seek balance, but I'm like, oh, but I can't like do nothing. You know, I was just in Charleston and they say like, that's a town with mailbox money. where like, nobody has a job, but like money just shows up in the mailbox. It's like Southern towns where like people just have money and we don't really know what they do for it. But like, that's not my experience. I'm like, I want to have a nice life. I have to work for it. And that has been really
0: frustrating to me.
1: And like socializing too.
0: Well, yes, yeah, Socializing and dating. We, we see your dating struggles. I know that you, you've been very clear about the fact that like you out earn a lot of the men in new Orleans and a lot of them find that a threat and that's difficult to contend with. That was like really shocking. Yeah. Yes. I didn't know that.
1: I wouldn't have thought that before I moved here. So that was like really shocking, but also like ideologically, like there's like a lot of differences. Like people are really religious here, like Christianity is just like kind of like the blanket, like rules a lot. And people, I think they're really desensitized to it. And it kind of shocks me how religious this place is.
0: Yes. Well, I do want to say that the Naked Beauty community is incredible. And I know that there are listeners in New Orleans. If there is someone that like wants to help you or work with you, Your DMs aren't open. You know, you're always like, Brooke, I don't know how you talk to everyone in your DMs. I'm like, I love it. You're like, my DMs are closed. I literally don't know how you do it. You amaze me. (laughs) Is there an email people can reach out to you if like they do want to work with you?
1: Yes. Danielle Prescott, like just one word, at
0: me.com. At me.com. Okay. Danielle Prescott at me.com. If you're in the New Orleans area and you've got hustle and ambition and you want to help Danielle on her goals, I think that through this listenership and audience, you can find someone... Really great. Do you feel like you have been able to successfully tap into the soft life, the slower pace? Because New York is just that like frenetic, crazy, like there's just so much happening at all times. Do you feel your life has slowed down?
1: This year, no. (laughs) Well, right. Yeah. Last year it was like a little bit better for me, but I'm actually since it's the end of the year, I'm like really I did this thing where I write down the top of the previous year all the stuff I wanted to accomplish for the next year. And then I review it at the end and check off everything I did and then start again. So I'm like thinking about like what I want my next year to look like. And in trying to like embrace the good parts of entrepreneurship, since I find myself so stressed, I'm like, I want to really like cultivate my schedule to like fit my needs. There's no reason I need to take meetings on Mondays. Like because I'm getting Sunday scaries and I never used to get them. And I'm like, if I don't want to do things on Monday, I'm just not going to do it on Monday. Like Monday will be for doing laundry, Monday will be for cleaning, having like appointments like nail appointments, like things like that. Like maybe I'll get a massage. Sounds so nice. So I'm going to try and condense my work week just to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because I already take Fridays off. And just try and like sit in that energy a little bit more because It's very apparent that I do vibrate at a different frequency than everyone in New Orleans. Like I am highly anxious. Like it radiates off me. I, (laughs) it's just so obvious. And, And I'm like always moving really quickly, but it's funny because when I go to New York, everyone around me is like moving at like rocket speed. And I feel like I'm going so slow now. I think that eventually I'll like slow down a little bit more, but I'm trying to like learn that process and like make that happen for myself at a faster rate too.
0: As someone who suffers from the same affliction as you do of like just doing the absolute most and like always wanting to exist in a state of productivity, I hope that for 2023, we can both slow down. What I have to do is I have to actively schedule like time to do nothing, which is like hard to do. But like, To be like, okay, like, how would you feel about if you put on your calendar from 2 to 4 p.m. during the week on a weekday? I'm not going to do anything. How would that feel for you?
1: Scary. It would feel like so indulgent. Like, you know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Which is crazy because like, what would our ancestors want for us, right? That we're like working the fields and like forced to work and be in a state of labor all the time. Like to have any guilt about giving yourself two hours to just relax and be. It's like, that's capitalism at work. It's true. It's sick.
1: And I know it too. And I see it all the time. Like, I'm like, I want to be, but you know, what's also like the sick part. The really sick part is like, I tell myself, I only work like this so later I can rest. Like I tell myself, I'm going to get to retirement faster. Like I'm, you're going to get there. Which you know is a lie. It's a lie. And I'm like, I need to stop saying it. I'm like, cause at this rate, I'm never retiring. Like this shit is so messed up. And so I feel like I really need to get to that mindset too. That like, I can exist without doing and it's okay.
0: You've been so generous with your time. I want to ask you two more questions. One through 2BG, you get to work with so many fashion brands, so many beauty brands, and you're working at very high levels, right? You're talking to the founders, you're talking to the presidents of companies. What do you think brands are struggling with most as they think about relating to or making their Black customers feel seen and heard?
1: I think for most businesses, they're foundational problem is that they don't realize that whiteness is like this silent umbrella. So it's like, they'll say my customer or our female customers, but like in parentheses, they mean white customer, white female. They don't realize that that is so embedded into like what their company is. And it's very hard for them to break up with that. Because like when they think about client or consumer or customer, like they're dream person is probably like a thin rich white lady, right? Like that's probably like who their target is. And so if you start there with like that being your target, it's very difficult then like years down the road to be like, oh no, of course we're for everybody. But you actually never work for everybody. So getting comfortable, I think, and honest first with like who you're marketing to and why, I think is a really crucial step for the industry because I think that, you know, pretending like we are in like Inclusivity land is just like it's theater and it's so weird because it's so easy to disprove that these brands actually are not inclusive and they never were. And that was not a principle that like mattered to them. So that is step one, I think.
0: As a creative and content creator in this industry, I think the last two weeks of January, you get inundated from brands that are like, Hey, Black History Month is coming up. We'd love for you to do XYZ. Now, Oftentimes, these are unpaid opportunities in exchange for reach. I've been approached to do story takeovers. I've been approached to do a multitude of things for Black History Month. And I do think that these brands think that they are doing the right thing by even acknowledging it and do not see the irony in asking a Black person to do labor for free. But how do you help brands meaningfully engage for Black History Month?
1: Oh, it's such a difficult time for us. And yes.
0: <laughs> and it's supposed to be our um, month of celebration and like Black History Month comes around and you're like, oh God, like what brand am I going to have to like tactfully explain to that? Like, this is not the right approach.
1: I know. And that's like another thing I feel like I've been doing for years as well. Black History Month is a big challenge. And I think brands have an issue with Understanding their own perception, like they inflate their value so much as a brand that they think that that matters to people. People are like, gas is $7 a gallon. Like there's no possible way I'm not interested in money for this. So I think making sure that if you are going to execute on Black History Month, just like the same way that you budget for launches via different quarters, like you need to put in your Q1 budget. Like this is something that we're prioritizing, like start putting your money where your mouth is. It's the same time every single year, just like the holidays. If you're ready for Black Friday, if you're ready for Cyber Monday, there's no reason you shouldn't also be ready for Black History Month. It is not a surprise. And so making sure that you have a strategy that you are reaching out in more than enough time that you are also... Talking to people and considering like what deliverables like make sense. Like, cause like sometimes these people will reach out to and their deliverables are like 20 deep. Like, oh yeah. What world is this like a normal ask? You know, there are plenty of consulting agencies, I run one, that are available to help with this. And I also think that like some of the hubris is like people just be like, I can take this on on my own. Or like observing from the outside, like that Ulta or like Sephora or someone else like executed well on an idea and thinking they can just like riff on that without bringing anyone into the organization with like an outside opinion it always turns out not so good.
0: It always does. You know what? I think the other thing that I empathize with, and I think it's challenging is a lot of times I will be asked by a black person at the company to like speak on a panel or again, speaking on a panel is still free labor. I think that's something that like also is not recognized as like labor. It is, even if it's just an internal panel, like you still have to get there. You still have to speak. You still have to be prepared. I've been asked to moderate so many panels for free 99, but I think what's h- tough is sometimes it's a black person asking you to do it for free, but it's because they have not been empowered or given budget to do it. So it's like, how do we also help our black peers at these companies go to their boss and say, or their, you know, whoever is handling the purse strings to say, I know we want to do this for a DE and I initiative. I know we want to do this for employees of color. I know we want to do this for black history month. I need budget to do it and to do it right. And because this company says they care about these values that should be reflected in the budget that I'm given so that I'm not going to creatives and asking them to do work for free on Black History Month.
1: I think like if you're looking to get empowered to do this, maybe Google search some articles that like someone wrote and like let them say it, like bake that into your plan, like write your boss an email, like hi so-and-so Black History Month is coming up. I would like to get these people to talk. This is what I would like to do. This is like how much something like this would cost. And this is why we need budget for it. See this article. Detailing or talking to people who have been asked to do free labor and they're really upset. Let me know if there's something we can move forward on. Then at least you know like where the company stands too, because I mean, I even had this issue by the end of my tenure at BET. Like I was so disgusted with the way I witnessed them treating black women. I have a problem now. I feel complicit in this. Like I don't like now knowing like how you are treating people. So now I have to make a decision on like what my involvement with this company is going to be. So like, I don't think that you should then, if the company says no, like we don't care, then put more effort into like making something happen. Just be like, okay, like...
0: That's where they stand.
1: One day start your own company. Understand that like, I think that that's another kind of unseen side effect of like tokenization where like you feel like you have to like take on this burden of making sure people are well represented and like your company is inclusive or the institution like is reflecting these values like why is that your problem it makes it you feel more irritable because you're doing more labor you're not getting paid for it you end up being resentful and it's like everyone else just gets to have a nine to five everyone else just gets to check out
0: You've always got to do the DE&I work. But I think it's also that feeling like if I don't do it, it won't be done.
1: If you work for like a major corporation, like, right, why is this? Even if you work at a startup, why is this your responsibility? It did not come with your job description. Unless you are getting paid for it, I don't think you should do it. Encourage them to hire consultants. Encourage them to like seek outside sources. Like it's okay to just do your job. I wish someone would have told me that like years ago. Like that would have
0: been fine. I do a lot of things for Black employees at my company and I enjoy doing it. And I do feel that the work is appreciated, but yes, it is that extra added burden and tax that just has to be recognized. I do need to ask you about your current skincare faves, beauty faves. I want to hear like what's making Danielle feel good lately. Like what are the products that you're just like slathering on. You're very much a wellness girl too. Like you've got all types of things to make you feel good. So what are you loving right now?
1: Hey, can I tell you, I got my first Lalabo the other day. <gasps> Wait,
0: which scent? I don't even want to say because... Santal. I, not, Santal. <laughs> not Santal. Well, everyone knows there is the matcha Lalabo scent. I have been... Evangel- I am truly obsessed with it in a way that... I've never been obsessed with a fragrance like this before. I agree. It's not a popular fragrance. It's like a skin scent, but it's just like, I crave it. Like I wake up and I like need it. Like I need to put it on. Do you feel that way?
1: This is sick. It's going to turn into an ad for La Labo. But I feel like when I went to the Austin store when I was in Austin and I had never even been in a La Lavo
0: store before. Oh, the stores are great.
1: I do remember the like Santal like takeover right? It was like everywhere. There were cut headlines about it. It's like you go into a yoga class, you're blasted with it. It smells kind of like an expensive hotel to me. It's really nice and everything. But I, I was like, because it became so basic, like overnight, I was like, oh everything about it. And this is how much I didn't know. I did not even know the was like a luxury brand. Like I thought it looked... I thought it looked a little like how someone would package a brand that wanted to appear higher tier than it was. Like it seemed to sit with a rag and bone to me. Like I was like, oh, like it's it's high contemporary, but like that's fine. Like the same fonts that they use, right?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And so I go into this store, like totally blind. And then I'm like, hey, I want a scent. And I was like, I don't want some talk. This is exactly what I told them. So they like start spraying one. And when I smelled the one that I have, which I will tell you when we're out there and I'm sorry to everyone else, I'm toxic, I'm gatekeeping, I don't care. I actually think that keeping <laughs> secrets is healthy. <laughs> some of them. And so I sprayed the he sprayed it. And I was like, that is it. And it was like, kind of like this switch. I'm like, when I imagined how the kind of person I want to be, she's like this. I am obsessed with it. It made, had made me more obsessed with myself. I'm like, I get to put this on and leave my house. I'm
0: wait. I put mine on like for like my first like week with the fragrance when like I was really deep, like in the honeymoon phase, I put it on to sleep. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah. That's deep. I've been rationing it because again, I had no idea that it was a luxury brand. So when they were like, I was like, Oh, I'll get this size. And it was like the little one. It was like 200 and something dollars. I was like, Oh. <laughs> and they go, you'll be back. And
0: like, it's like a drug dealer. They're like, we gave you a little taste. You're going to be back.
1: I will be back and I will get the big one. And then I will feel at more because I I don't think I can get it in New Orleans. I don't think there's a store here. So I'm, I'm either gonna have to have it shipped in whatever, you know, I already checked that they had a Black Friday sale. They did not. So,
0: oh my gosh,
1: I will have to go in person. But I love it.
0: Yeah. Lalabo. It's like, don't resist. I feel like I resisted because of the same thing about Santal. I was like, it's basic. Everyone does Lalabo. Go into your nearest Lalabo if you can and just experience and find your scent because so good. Okay. So Lalabo, what are you loving for your skin? Your skin looks so good, by the way.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Actually, like this, I have to say is like all attributed to environment, like coming back to like the humid, warm place. Like it, my skin was suffering because in LA, and I don't know if you feel it's so dry. It is. Like my nose was hurting. And so much sun. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. My nose was hurting from breathing in the air. It's like, there's no moisture in this air. It's so bad. So I was traveling around a lot. So my skin was like freaking out. But now, yes, I'm using... Barbara Sturm darker skin tones, foaming face wash in the morning. And then I use the Dew Deliverance Serum. Then I use the Barbara Sturm Brightening Serum. And then I use the Dew Instant Angel Moisturizer. And that's it. And at night I use Tretinoin. And that's like pretty much it. I'm very into like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, like kind of mode. Like I don't need extra, extra. I had on my New Year's list that I wanted to like get into Gua Sha. Love that. And I did not do it one time this year. Like literally not one time in 2022 did I touch that thing. But I'm going to move it into my shower. And I saw some girls doing it in the shower. Like hopefully that will like make me inspired to like try it again.
0: If it's not feeling natural to you, then like don't force it. I do
1: miss having a more snatched face. That is one thing I do miss. I think my face has gotten a little round and I would like to bring back some angles. That's my reason for
0: washing. You have gorgeous cheekbones, a gorgeous face. Thank you. Everything's perfect. I
1: agree. I agree. But you know, I want to like maintain
0: (laughs) the youthful snatch. Okay. When do you feel most beautiful lately?
1: I've actually think I have come so far. And I was thinking about this the other day because I was like, I don't know if I should write something about this. Like, I don't know if my self-confidence or self-esteem has like just skyrocketed or I have gotten more used to my face and body because like now I'm like 34. So I'm like, bitch, this is it. Like, it's just like settling. But I'm like, I'm very pleased all the time when I see my own reflection. Like I'm a Leo as you know. Now.
0: Yes. Fellow
1: Leo. Yes. And I'm a Leo rising. Like I love mirrors. And previously when I would look in the mirror, I would be real like sad kind of. I'd be like, oh, and like now when I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh my gosh, how happy. Hey girl. I love it. And I also think that thinking about, I got a um, our guy Facebook post the other day and like 10 years ago, I was 24. That's so crazy to me. How different my life was, how different, like everything was. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like I'm so happy to like 10 years, you know, past that to be like so much better than I ever even thought I could be. And like how everything is just like working out. And I'm like, that's, it feels so good. And so I think that also is contributing to me feeling beautiful. That's a long-winded answer to say like a lot lately.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. That perspective that comes with aging and just, it's not really even aging, right? It's the more life experiences you get that bring you closer to who you truly are brings you closer to that like beautiful idealized version of yourself. And now you've got the La Lava fragrance to like spritz on top of it. So
1: I feel like I don't need anything. And I kid you not, I get so many compliments. People are always like, what is that? Because it sits on your skin so specifically. Like yeah. it really is just such a good product. Like it's making me feel like, great.
0: I'm like, can't wait to get the tea after we wrap this call because I'm like dying to know what the... But you know what? But that's also the other thing. Scent is so personal. So I can tell you, I love the Matcha La Lava fragrance, but like you really have to figure out what your own thing is because it's not for everyone. It's a very woody scent. Like it's not a common thing. Fragrance is personal. I would not take a fragrance recommended only to try, but not to buy. I would never buy a fragrance because someone else liked it. You have to try it and see if it works with you.
1: I agree. And also there's a lot of scent that I don't like, but this is like, I'm like, it's too precious. And then I didn't know that I'm telling you guys all this. So if you actually go to the labo, you won't look like so dumb like I did, but you can write something on the bottle. <laughs> and so like, I had them write my name and they were like, oh, you have like 26 characters or something. So I was like, oh, you can put my last name too. So then I got to LA and my friend was like, did you put your whole name on your own bottle, <laughs> You loser. I <laughs> am like, can't
0: That's hilarious. That's hilarious. So
1: think about what you want your bottle to say before you go in there. It's all I'll say to you guys.
0: Yes, yes. Well, Danielle, I can't wait for your second book, your third book, the Token Black Girl series. Like, I feel like this is just the beginning for you. And I'm so proud of you. And I just cannot say enough great things about your amazing book. And I recommend it to everyone. I think it's just, there hasn't been a book like this and it's so important. So thank you so much for just writing it.
1: Thank you so much. You've been so supportive. And I don't know how you have all the energy that you do. Like you are very inspiring. You seem to never get tired. And the only other person I know like that is Charlotte Palermino. And I'm like, I don't know how you guys exist.
0: <laughs> hey, listen, you're like in that club as well as like just doing the absolute most. But you know what? We do it because we're driven by passion and we have things that we want to express and say and get out into the world. And you need to I don't know. You just got to do it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. I will link to all of the fabulous places people can follow you, your TikTok, your Instagram account. Of course, the book, order it. You read the audio book as well, right? I did. Yes. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. A friend of mine has been listening with her baby at home. She's like, I've been listening to Danielle's book and we're really loving it and learning so much. So I love that. Yes. Thank you so much again. And we'll chat soon. Thank you. All right. That was my conversation with Miss Danielle Prescott. She is just wonderful. The book is wonderful. I can't say enough great things about token black girl. I think this is such an important and brave discussion. And while I have a similar experience to Danielle in a lot of ways, I think I also did not experience some of the things that she really struggled with and contended with. And it's also made me more empathetic and aware of how other black women that may be the only one are feeling. Even though my experience is similar, I learned a lot from this book, but I also think this book is important for people that are in the majority, for white people to read and for white people to have conversations about, because the more you can learn about other people's experiences, the more empathetic you are, the more aware you are of different people and what they're carrying around with them. So this is something I really recommend for everyone. Thank you all so, so much for listening. I hope you're taking great care of yourselves. Until next time.